All right, let's go ahead and get started here. Our um, first panel today, our first panel today here is titled Toward a Rules-Based International Monetary System. I was talking with, with George Selgin out in the hallway right before this panel started, and we were remarking on how uh, appropriate the, the remarks were that Jim Dorn just said when he announced that we were reconfiguring the schedule, was that you have to be flexible with these sort of things. You try to set a plan, but when Congress comes in, sometimes you have to change your plan all around. And the reason that's so appropriate is because that's exactly the challenge that monetary policy faces, is they try to set a plan, but then Congress comes in and might get them to try to change their plan. That's exactly why we have a debate, uh, we have this debate over rules-based policy versus discretionary monetary policy, is that, you know, there's always the temptation of a policymaker to uh, change the monetary policy for short-term goals, uh, possibly at the behest of Congress. Uh, so that's why today's panel is going to be really interesting. We have four great speakers um, who are going to be with us today. The one who's going to speak first is John Taylor, who's a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, professor of economics at Stanford. Uh, he served as a senior economist on the Council of Economic Advisors for uh, Presidents Ford and Carter, and he was a member of the council for President George H.W. Bush. From 2001 to 2005, he served as Undersecretary of Treasury for International Affairs. And of course, he's very well known for his, monetary, uh, for his academic work on monetary policy rules. Everyone knows the Taylor Rule is named after his work on this topic. Our second speaker, George Tavlis, is a member of the Monetary Policy Council on the Bank of Greece. In that position, he's also an alternate on the Governing Council of the European Central Bank. He's a former Division Chief at the International Monetary Fund and has also worked at the State Department, the World Bank, and the OECD. Uh, Judy Shelton, who will be speaking third, is an economist focused on international finance, banking, and monetary issues. She's a senior fellow at the Atlas Network, co-directed their Sound Money Project, and has been very busy over the last year and a half as a member of the Trump Economic Advisory Council and as an advisor to the Trump transition team on uh, international issues at the Treasury Department. And our final speaker will be uh, Charles Plosser, who was president and CEO of the Philadelphia Fed uh, for 10 years, from 2006 to uh, 2015. Before that, he was the dean of the Simon Graduate School of Business at the University of Rochester. And for 20 years, he was one of the editors of the Journal of Monetary Economics. So this is a really interesting panel. I mean, this is people who have been uh, practitioners at the monetary policy uh, councils in the US and Europe, people who've been at the Treasury, people who've been advising the, the current president. Um, so we're going to get a really great diversity of views. Um, and I think you're really going to enjoy this. Um, our first speaker up is uh, John Taylor. Thank you very much, uh, Josh. Thanks for inviting me, uh, particular Jim Dorn, for organizing these over the years. I've I had the uh, privilege to be involved in several of these. And I, I don't, did you take the pleasure of the thing? OK. Um, oh, I think George has it. Oh, George. Thank you. And my good friend George, it's a pleasure to be on the panel with George all the way from Greece, and Judy, and uh, Charlie, and appreciate uh, Josh's introduction. So uh, I love this topic of uh, rules-based uh, international monetary policy. <laughs> and um, been thinking about it for a while, in particular the international aspects of it which I think are very important and uh, frequently uh, overlooked or neglected. It's actually a global economy after all, and there's lots of relationships between monetary policy and different central banks. <clears throat> I think it speaks for 
many other reasons to have a more rules-based policy. So I've been making the case for quite a while uh, of uh, having an international system which is more rules-based. Um, goes back a long time for me. Um, I've taken it up a lot recently. I think the case for moving towards a more rules-based system is now greater than ever. I think there's some evidence. I'm going to show you that in my remarks that we've deviated uh, in the last, say, dozen years. And I think it began before the financial crisis. It's very important to recognize that. But we have deviated from a more rules-based system. And many people have noted that. I, I frequently quote Paul Volcker here uh, for his uh, statement that this has not been a success. To talk about monetary policy in the recent years, you have to recognize that there's two basic instruments that have been focused. One, of course, is the policy interest rate, but the other is the balance sheet and the size of the balance sheet. And for me, that's mainly related to the expansion of reserve balances, the way that central banks, not just the Fed, but the BOJ and the ECB and many others have expanded their purchases of various kinds of assets by expanding their reserves. I think both of these instruments have deviated from rules-based policy, and I think there's reasons for it, and part of the reasons has to do with exchange rates, what's caused this contagion, if you like, or connection between both uh, unusual interest rate policy and unusual balance sheet policy, in many respects, has to do with the international system and concerns about exchange rates. I want to describe this as factually as I can. So I'm going to use data from the BOJ, the Fed, and the ECB uh, as the major large central banks engaged in this activity, but also recognize that a lot of it is a small open economies to some extent being pushed around by these other policies. So, and I want to look at the Swiss National Bank as an example of a small open economy that's confronting these issues. I'm going to look not only, as I indicated, at the policy uh, interest rate changes, uh, federal funds rate in the U.S., but also at the balance sheet. And, and, and it's very important to get this empirically correct. So I'm going to have, I say, there's really four countries, the U.S., Europe, Eurozone, uh, Japan, and Switzerland. And there's two instruments. That's the policy interest rate and the balance sheet. And by the balance sheet, I'm going to measure that by reserves, by reserve balances. And that means there's eight instruments. So I'm going to think about this as a little policy matrix. I'll call it the International Monetary Policy <coughs> Matrix. Of course, the actual matrix is much bigger than this. I have enough trouble figuring with eight different things on one, at one time. So bear with me, if you might. So this picture shows you the reserves for the US, Japan, Europe, and uh, Switzerland. It also shows the interest rate for the US, Japan, Europe, and Switzerland. The numbers on the far left are just correlations between these variables. And it's quite remarkable. There's an enormous uh, relationship between them. The little uh, boxes on the right are the charts, actually, that, of these two variables. So this, this policy matrix has a lot of information if you can look carefully at the little boxes. But first of all, the numbers. Uh, these are positive correlations between reserve balances. So you can think of that as roughly the size of the balance sheet between the different central banks. And of course, we know this. There's a relationship, quantitative easing, in this recent 
period. It began with the U.S. It was followed by Japan. It was followed by Europe. And, this, and other small uh, open economies like Switzerland have been involved. So there's an extraordinarily high correlation between those. That's this contagion I'm talking about. We, we know some of this already. We understand why it's the case. And it's one of the reasons I think there's been this deviation from rules-based policy. You can see the same thing with the interest rates. So these are the correlations between the policy interest rate in these countries. Uh, this is something I've been writing about for a long time, since the, before the crisis, because I could see there's a connection between the deviations from policy in one country and in another. Again, a lot of this has to do with exchange rates. If, if one country cuts its rates, interest rates by quite a bit, it will put upward pressure on exchange rates elsewhere and usually brings upon a, a response. So these are also very high correlations between the policy interest rates. By the way, the highest correlation, not too surprising, is the Eurozone and the Swiss National Bank. Uh, on the far right. There's also a strong negative. These are all negative numbers. Every single correlation here is negative between the interest rates and reserve balances. And that's not only within each country, which is probably understandable, but it's across countries as well. So there's a lot of really remarkable relationships between these that you need to take into account if you're going to understand uh, the deviation from rules-based policy and what we need to do to get back there. Finally, these little graphs. Um, if you look at the ones up here, that reflects the United States reserve balances and back of Japan reserve balances and their relationship uh, with the other countries. I've blown them up a little bit, and uh, you can do that yourselves, of course, with the, the computer files. But these are actually reserve balances for <coughs> over in the upper right-hand, uh, upper left-hand part of the picture between the U.S. and Japan. So you can see our expansion in the blue. That's the quantitative easing in the US. Um, it eventually led to quantitative easing in Japan. You can see the red. And you see the same thing throughout. There's a strong positive correlation. And the timing is quite uh, striking, I think. If you look at the very far uh, right lower part, that's the uh, relationship between Japan and the Swiss. So there's basically a strong response of quantitative easing across all of these countries. Now, what's going on? I think a lot of it has to do with the exchange rates. And there's not a lot of discussion of exchange rates. Of course, there's exchange rate discussion in Switzerland of small open economies. And the Bank of Japan has mentioned exchange rates. And the European Central Bank has mentioned exchange rates. But when you look at the details, you see an enormous effect. And I think that's really what I'm trying to point out here more than anything else. You look at regressions of those, say, reserve balances and exchange rates now in the different countries. You see very strong reserve balances increasing the Bank of Japan causes the yen to depreciate against both the dollar and the euro. Second bullet, if you see reserve balances increasing by the Fed, it causes statistically a, a depreciation uh, against the yen and the euro. And it's all the same. The ECB expands its reserve balances. That's my measure of the balance sheet size. It causes the euro to depreciate against the yen and the dollar. For most small open economies like Switzerland, it's a two-way causality because you can detect very clearly the response of their policies, both interest rate and, and the balance sheet, to movements in the exchange rate, to movements in the euro. But you also can see the reverse causality, their impacts on the exchange rate. And so the last of the bullets here is, represents this two-way causality, which is easy to detect. Finally, just uh, while there are regressions I'm referring to, you can get a lot of just looking at some of the charts. So this is one which I think is helpful. It's reserve balances for at the upper part of the picture. Uh, the scale is on the right. 
reserve balances for the U.S., the Fed, the Bank of Japan, RJ, and ECB. And then you see, that in this case, the yen dollar exchange rate. So during this period, uh, the first part, you see the, the yen appreciating uh, against the, the, uh, the dollar, in this case. At the same time, you have this massive expansion of the Fed's balance sheet, that's RU. And then, of course, you have the response of this in Japan. That's the green line starts to move up when the Japan response of Abe runs for election on the problem of the strong yen. He appoints Haruko Kuroda. There's quantitative easing in Japan. And lo and behold, you see the yen depreciating substantially, as in the picture. So there's something there. Um, and it, even if it's not explicitly mentioned or discussed, I'm not going to go through all the reasons, but it's definitely a factor. And you can see the same things in other cases. So let me just give you this picture. This is the dollar euro exchange rate. And you can see way over on the right is the strong uh, depreciation of the euro against the dollar. And that's highly synchronized with the quantitative easing, which is shown by the increase in RE reserves balances uh, at, in the ECB in this period. So. While <clears throat> these are numbers which I think are pretty obvious in the graphs, they do come very strongly statistically in, in the sense of using regression. So I think it's very important to understand this mechanism. And it's understandable if there's a big change in your exchange rate, that's going to affect the economy. And there's a response that uh, takes place, both on interest rate, which we've, we've been working on for a while, but also the size of the balance sheet as well. So the empirical results, just to, to summarize, are these exchange rate considerations have accentuated the deviations from the rules-based policy. And, and part of that is because of the, ex the response to the exchange rate. I think that's a source of instability. Uh, Alan Meltzer at the Jackson Hole Conference in 2016 said this is clearly there's competitive devaluations going on here. That's his terminology. But it's something like that shows up in the, in the data that I'm reporting. It obviously causes excessive movements in exchange rates. You can simulate those, uh, use those regressions I mentioned to simulate a counterfactual that if you didn't have all this QE and the volatility of exchange rates would decline by roughly 50%. So it's twice as much as otherwise would be according to these estimates. Obviously it causes political instability if people are pointing to currency manipulation here. And I think if you just think about what's happened in this period of time, there's been this massive expansion of balance sheets Again, not just one central bank, it's global. And so that raises questions of how the globally you have normalization, how this unwinds. I think there's, there's not too much question that, that you've seen this exchange rate volatility increase um, over time. Related to that is an increase in capital flow volatility. Many people have pointed this out. Many at the IMF has pointed it out. Sometimes people say it's due to other factors. It's not monetary policy. It's just the world is becoming more unstable, more complicated, more interconnected. I think a lot of it is monetary policy. And so therefore, I think that the, the evidence that I'm presenting here, summarizing here, the empirical side of this suggests that a move towards a more rules-based policy will make a big difference, will reduce some of the volatility. And that's, uh, that's my argument for doing so. So finally, then, the policy implications. And there's uh, empirical results uh, help move you in this direction. One is that I th the international economy would be more stable. You'd have less volatility. Um, 
if there was a more rules-based system internationally. I, I would add, I think things would be more stable if there was a more rules-based system for each central bank. And that's led me to the general idea that you'd get a more rules-based international system simply by each central bank following a more rules-based system. So I very much agree with the, mo with the general legislation that the congressman uh, just referred to before our talk. I think the descriptions and the commitments uh, would reduce some of this volatility. Um, it would certainly remove some of the reasons that central banks have uh, reacted to each other, both in terms of interest rates and in terms of the balance sheet. In many respects, we are, we're, we're at a point where it's possible to move in this direction. I think the notion of an inflation target, which is actually quite common to the four central banks that I just mentioned. Uh, there's debates about the equilibrium interest rate, which uh, uh, President Mester's referred to. Um, that can certainly be incorporated in any kind of strategy. And of course, there's lists of variables to react to, and, and there's a great degree of commonality on what those are at this point in time. I think for the most part, if this was introduced, it would be with a flexible exchange rate system. The Eurozone itself could have the Euro, of course, but the, the flexibility that would occur between currencies is important. I do think it would reduce the volatility substantially. It would re remove a great degree of uncertainty in uh, the reactions that have caused the, uh, the movements. My last point here, I think, is very important. Um, this, what I'm describing as a way to move towards a more rules-based system is in which each country does what's in their own interest. The Fed adopts a more rules-based policy it's in the interest of the United States to do that. Europe does the same thing. Japan does the same thing. But that also provides for a global, a more global, stable situation. So it's quite remarkable, and this is in a way, way of a remarkable theorem, if you like, that each country could choose its own independent strategy, um, and that would simultaneously contribute to global stability because it would create this more rules-based international system. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. Uh, I'd like to begin by thanking the organizers and Jim Dorn for inviting me to be here. My presentation is based on a paper that I co-authored with Harris Stellis. As you know, the issue that we've been asked to address, a rules-based international monetary system, is by no means a new issue. In fact, for most of the past 150 years, the international monetary system has operated as a rules-based system. For about 100 years from the second half of the 19th century to the early 1970s, the favored rule was based on a type of fixed exchange rate arrangement. During the past 30 years, the favored arrangement has been a combination of flexible exchange rates and in many countries, including the United States during the Great Moderation, a Taylor rule that targets domestic economic conditions. What I'll do today is provide a comparative analysis of the performance of these systems through the lens of Milton Friedman whose assessment of the durability of alternative rules-based systems proved to be prescient, as I'll demonstrate. 
In common with modern thinking on rules, Friedman favored a domestically oriented monetary rule for economic stability reasons. Such a rule, he believed, would be the best way of allowing the economy to grow at a rate consistent with full employment. But in contrast to much of the modern debate on rules, Friedman also favored a domestically oriented rule because he believed that such a rule embedded in legislation would also be the best way of ensuring consistency in the conduct of monetary policy with democratic principles. I'll begin by taking you on a little tour, we'll see how this works, of the three international fixed exchange rate systems that existed in the 19th century, the 20th century. The classical gold standard of 1880 to 1924, the, uh, the, uh, to 1923, the interwar gold standard that existed from 1924 to 1936, and the Bretton Woods system that existed from 1944 until 1973. For each system, I'll describe what Friedman viewed as the flaws undermining its viability in the conditions of the mid-20th century and after. First stop, then, the classical gold standard. The basic rule for each monetary authority was the commitment to convert its domestic currency into a specified quantity of gold at a fixed nominal price. And this rule required the subordination of domestic economic conditions to the requirements of the fixed exchange rate constraint. And the attractive feature of the gold standard was the process of external adjustment. It was essentially automatic. For example, a country facing a balance of payments deficit would undergo an outflow of gold, a reduction of its money supply, and falling prices, restoring external competitiveness and external balance. Now, monetary historians and some libertarians, citing the durability of the system, have a benign view of the workings of the classical gold standard. They argued that the exchange rate stability of the period helped create a global trade boom. And in the case of the libertarians, there was a dearth of government intervention. As a result, it was in unprecedented levels of capital exflows, ex exports. Friedman had a very different view. To be sure, he believed that if an automatic gold standard were feasible, it would provide an excellent solution to the libertarian's dilemma, a stable monetary framework without the danger of the irresponsible exercise of monetary powers by governments. But Friedman also believed that the gold standard, whatever its merits in the world of the early 20th century, would not be viable in the modern world. The earlier world placed a heavy emphasis on freedom of government intervention in economic affairs. Governments were willing to subordinate domestic economic policy, regardless of the level of unemployment, to the requirements of the fixed exchange rate rule. Why? Because governments could afford to do so. Voting rights were far from universal, so that the political costs of deflationary policies were relatively small. Unions had yet to gain significant power, and therefore wages were flexible so that the unemployment costs of deflationary policies were also relatively small. The world in the aftermath of the First World War, Friedman emphasized, 
was very different. The Great Depression of 1929 to 1933 encouraged the view that a free market system is inherently unstable. And therefore, the government has a responsibility to stabilize the system. As a result, the role of governments in economic affairs expanded greatly, and domestic economic stability replaced exchange rate stability as the overriding goal of economic policy. In these circumstances, Friedman believed that governments of modern advanced nations, dominated by Keynesian thinking about the role of government in the economy, would no longer be willing to submit themselves to what he called the harsh discipline of the gold standard. And yet, following the end of the First World War, which had seen the suspension of the gold standard, policymakers, not realizing how the world was changing, tried to reconstruct that regime. And that brings us to stop number two on our tour, the interwar gold exchange standard. Like its pre-war predecessor, the interwar standard was based on a rule involving the convertibility of the domestic currency into gold at a fixed nominal price, but with one difference. Concern that the then existing global gold stock would produce deflation, policymakers actively encouraged the use of key currencies, the US dollar, the pound sterling, and to some extent the French franc as international reserves, that, that is, as substitutes or complements for gold. As a result, both the domestic money stock and international reserves contain large fiduciary elements, loosening the link between gold flows and domestic economic conditions. As a result, adjustment was no longer automatic. In the absence of automatic adjustment, central bank cooperation on interest rates was used to backstop the system. During the 1920s, that cooperation centered on the four leading central bankers of the period, the heads of the Bank of England, the Bank of France, the German Reichsbank, and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Now, historians have a generally benign view of that cooperation, their view being that in the absence of automatic adjustment and all capital controls, cooperation among the key monetary authorities of any fixed exchange rate system is required to support the system. Friedman, again, had a very different perspective. Oh, he recognized that the four central bankers believed that their secret cooperation had a worthy ulterior motive to enhance the economic performance of the Western world against the then perceived threat of rising communism. But Friedman argued that cooperation bypassed the usual process of democratic governance. The four central bankers were accountable to no one. The implicit doctrine in Friedman's view was thoroughly dictatorial and totalitarian. Ultimately, this cooperation proved unsustainable. In early 1928, the Fed put gold standard considerations aside. Despite large inflows of gold into the US, the Fed, concerned about stock market speculation, began raising interest rates. And contrary to the gold standard rules of the game, the US money supply started falling. A year and a half later, with the money supply falling, the Great Depression was underway. And with it came the collapse of the interwar gold standard. But policymakers 
our persistent breed. In the early 1940s, led by John Maynard Keynes, who is advising the UK Treasury, and Harry Dexter White, who was with the US Treasury, they again tried to construct a durable fixed exchange rate system. And this brings us to stop number three on our tour, the Bretton Woods system. The basic rule was for the United States to convert the dollar into gold at a fixed nominal price, while other countries pegged their currencies within 1% bands against the dollar. Two key innovations were introduced to make the system durable this time. First, controls on capital flows were permitted so that monetary policy could pursue domestic economic objectives. And second, the system was an adjustable peg, meaning that occasional discrete changes in exchange rates were permitted so that to encourage equilibrium in a country's balance of payments and to discourage destabilizing speculation on foreign exchange markets. In 1950, at a time when the economics profession was overwhelmingly, I would dare say, essentially unanimously in favor of fixed exchange rates, Friedman wrote a now classic paper in favor of flexible exchange rates. In that paper, which he couldn't get published in a periodical because of the prevalent view of the time, he finally settled to publish it in a book in 1953 that he edited. He predicted that the two innovations would prove counterproductive. He predicted that ways would be found to evade the capital controls and that the adjustable peg system would encourage rather than discourage destabilizing speculation. And so it turned out. The Bretton Woods years became increasingly characterized by the evasion of capital controls and by series of speculative attacks against key currencies, including the US dollar, leading to the collapse of the system. In contrast to fixed exchange rates, Friedman believed the flexible exchange rates would both encourage equilibrium and the balance of payments and provide national authorities with the ability to use monetary policy to pursue domestic economic objectives. The question he considered was whether a domestic monetary rule would be preferable to discretion. Based on reasons having to do with both democratic governance and his empirical research, he concluded that it would. For one thing, he found that discretion can be destabilizing because of the long and variable lags of monetary policy. For example, the effects of a policy tightening, taming, taken to restrain demand in the present might not kick in until the future contractionary phase of the cycle, amplifying the contraction. He also believed that discretion gives a few individuals too much power without any check on that power. And finally, discretion, he believed, provides the ability to subject policy actions to political pressures, the accidents of the personalities of those in power, and fads in economic thinking. Therefore, discretion can have unfortunate consequences. The prime example was the Great Depression, which Friedman attributed, he found in his empirical research, it was due to misguided policies 
by incompetent Federal Reserve authorities. The rule that he favored for much of his career was one under which the money supply would grow annually within a range of 3 to 5% in order to maintain a roughly stable price level. But he never believed that rule was a magic bullet. He realized that it wouldn't eliminate mild economic fluctuations, but he believed that it would almost certainly rule out the major fluctuations caused by policy mistakes in the past. At the time in the 1950s when Friedman first presented his money supply rule, he made it clear this rule was not set in stone. He was open to other rules that could become more suitable should our understanding of the economy improve. And in his later years, he acknowledged that a money growth rule, which requires stability in the relationship between the demand for money and key economic variables, might not be practical in the world of financial market innovation. He also acknowledged that our understanding of the economy had indeed improved over the years. And in this connection, he had been favorably impressed with the performance of monetary policy during a period from the mid-1980s to the late 1990s. Empirical studies by John Taylor and others have shown that a Taylor rule under which the authorities target the short-term policy rate so that it responds to deviations of actual inflation from target inflation, deviations of actual GDP from potential GDP, accurately captured the movements in the Fed's policy rate during that period. In other words, policy was conducted as if the authorities were following a Taylor rule. So let's take stock of Friedman's views on rules-based international monetary systems. First, while an automatic commodity standard would ideally provide an excellent solution to the libertarian search for a stable monetary framework, it would be difficult to implement in a world of big governments dominated by Keynesian thinking. Second, fixed exchange rate systems that are not fully automatic require either policy coordination which can be incompatible with democratic governance, or special features such as capital controls that are costly and easy to evade. Third, a flexible exchange rate system combined with a domestic monetary rule embedded in legislation that aims to achieve a stable price level is compatible with both full employment and democratic governance. And finally, while International policy coordination is difficult to maintain in any case. It's not necessary under a system that combines flexible exchange rates with a domestic monetary rule for each country. Instead of policy coordination, we'd have policy coordination. But which rule would be preferable today? While the Friedman money supply rule is not practical in today's world, the Taylor rule despite a few difficulties in its implementation discussed in our paper, has proved to be both a practical and preferable alternative. And if embedded in legislation, a worthy successor to Friedman's search for rule that simultaneously achieves price level stability, full employment, and <laughs> democratic accountability. Thank you very much.
Thank you. Hello, everyone. Let me start by congratulating the Cato Institute and particularly Jim Dorn for organizing this superb annual event for 35 years. It's an honor and a pleasure to be on the program. I believe this is my ninth time. And I suppose reflecting on having had the privilege of speaking before this very knowledgeable audience on numerous occasions and serving on panels with distinguished monetary scholars and practitioners, I suppose it's actually a bit demoralizing to realize that after delivering essentially the same message for decades, which is that the world needs a rules-based international monetary system, we have made virtually no progress toward achieving that objective. Clearly, I haven't managed to successfully make the case that the absence of a functioning, rational, international monetary system not only undermines the fundamental logic for free trade, it also compromises its moral principles. I have not convinced lawmakers on the Hill, let alone a sitting president, that it's time for the United States to initiate reforms aimed at bringing order to currency relations, to stop ignoring the impact of exchange rate movements on trade and investment flows, and to recognize that the main drivers of exchange rate shifts are central bankers. They're the currency manipulators. It's been 23 years since I wrote a book as a senior research fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford entitled Money Meltdown, Restoring Order to the Global Currency System. During all that time, my commitment to the cause has not wavered. This despite the fact that no president since then, since 1994, whether Democrat, Republican, Democrat again, no president has stood up to say that it's time to think about how to align currencies, how to establish rules to prevent competitive devaluation from distorting trade balances. There was this sense in the post-Soviet years of renewed dedication to an open global marketplace where opportunity through competition would be encouraged and rewarded. Maybe that's why we weren't ready to point a finger at formerly communist nations that seemed prepared to move toward democracy and free markets. 1994 was the year that China officially devalued the yuan by 33% overnight as part of its effort to embrace a socialist market economy. But the issue of currency manipulation for purposes of gaining an export advantage over trade partners did not receive much attention uh, for some 20 years or so. <clears throat> oh, sure, uh, some US politicians acknowledged the problem with indignation on behalf of their constituents, especially in states where manufacturing companies, such as automakers, found themselves competing against imports from Japan or China or Mexico. Those complaints were bipartisan, in fact with prominent Democratic leaders such as Senator Chuck Schumer 
joining with Republican figures such as Senator Rob Portman, who also served as U.S. Trade Representative, to say that it wasn't fair. American workers and American products could compete as well as any country in the global marketplace, but currency shifts engineered by foreign governments and central banks put them at a disadvantage. Well, complaining about exchange rate issues was generally dismissed as veiled protectionism by advocates of free trade, predominantly conservative Republicans. But now, let's fast forward to our current president and the current moment. While I realize this is an economic forum and there are attendant risks to bringing up politics, it seems to me that it would be disingenuous and rather unrealistic to talk about the prospects for implementing a rules-based international monetary system, the topic for this panel, without saying something about the prospective role of the country with the world's most dominant reserve currency and the inclination of that country's elected leader to pursue any such agenda. You know, as economists, we often speak as if we're evolving towards something. But these things don't just organize themselves. The last time the world had a rules-based international monetary system, it was the result of deliberate political action undertaken by the executive branch of the United States. The Bretton Woods Agreement was forged as a strategic response to the aggressive actions of the Axis powers at the time of World War II and for the express purpose of inspiring our allies to hold out and prevail over the aggressors. As described in the original documents exploring how we might possibly set up a stable exchange rate system to serve the post-war economy, and that first Treasury Department memo was written less than a week after Pearl Harbor was attacked, the objective was to unify and encourage the anti-Axis forces, quote, to greatly strengthen their will and effort to win. Those war-torn nations needed to believe that something better was on the horizon than the Depression years of the 1930s, which were still fresh in their memories. If the world was just going to revert to those same beggar-thy-neighbor policies, with everyone depreciating their currencies to undercut trade partners, with no international monetary order, no structure, well, it wasn't exactly a compelling economic vision. So what was Bretton Woods? It was a rules-based international monetary system that established fixed exchange rates among the currencies of participating nations and permitted their central banks to redeem US dollars in gold at a fixed rate of convertibility. Okay, now let me ask you, what are the rules today? Are there any rules? Do we have freely floating rates? Are exchange rates determined by the private sector, by market forces, by the supply and demand for currencies as needed to finance exports and imports? Well, then, why do governments even have foreign exchange reserves? Why stockpile foreign currencies in central banks 
if it is up to private free market forces to determine at any given moment what is the exchange rate between two currencies? Why should the governments of China and Japan and Saudi Arabia and Russia hold any US dollars in reserve, let alone trillions? When central banks can intervene in foreign exchange markets or just intimidate foreign exchange markets with their massive reserves, it's not a free float. It's a dirty float, which is more of a cartel than any kind of international monetary system. Milton Friedman did not like dirty floats. He warned that central banks would meddle, always with the best of intentions. Now, Milton didn't like pegged rates either. In his view, the Bretton Woods exchange rate system under the IMF was an enemy to free trade and was doomed to fail. Even dirty floating rates were preferable to pegged exchange rates, Friedman said. But what about the pre-World War I international gold standard? Were dirty floating rates preferable to having a unified currency area, which is what we had under the classical gold standard? Friedman's answer, not necessarily. And a 1994 article for National Review entitled Free Floating Anxiety, Milton Friedman stated, quote, a true gold standard, a unified currency, is indeed consistent with free trade. So where am I going with this? Well, I confess, I think we should have monetary arrangements that are indeed consistent with free trade. Here's another confession, a more daring one. I believe that for the first time in a long time, under President Trump, there's a chance to initiate meaningful progress toward a new international monetary system based on rules, and maybe even linked to a common denominator, a monetary reference point for measuring the performance of national currencies or regional currencies in a cogent way. One very impressive virtue of a gold standard is that it embraces national sovereignty even as it provides a unified currency system, one that facilitates international commerce and capital flows, one that is not coercive but rather voluntary, one that functions automatically and is inherently self-disciplining, one that is genuinely consistent with free trade. Best of all, you don't need a global currency or global central bank in order to have a unified currency. But do you need gold? My answer is no. But why wouldn't you use a universally accepted standard of monetary value as the obvious benchmark for correlating currencies? What could be less political, more transparent, not just for governments, but for regular citizens. It makes no sense to immediately reject out of hand the option of utilizing a reserve asset that is held by 100 central banks around the world, literally, whose aggregate holdings amount to 18% of all the gold that exists above ground. What are the mechanics for building a forward-looking gold standard? I won't get into details here, but I did lay out a specific proposal standing at this podium three years ago 
at the 32nd Annual Monetary Conference at Cato. What's the likelihood we'll actually implement monetary reform? I'm not making predictions. But where there's a will, there's a way. And that's the fundamental question. Is there a will? A will to go beyond accusations of currency manipulation, beyond finger pointing. A political will to confront the problem and resolve it by instituting new monetary arrangements that are consistent with the principles, the logic, and the morality of free trade. Would these new arrangements, if we were to pursue them, be set up as bilateral side agreements, measuring the impact of an exchange rate shift between the dollar and an individual trade partner's currency? Would we seek to define how the movement of one currency relative to the other affected price competitiveness or altered the trade balance or distorted investment flows? Would there be retribution if, say, over a two-year or five-year period, one currency depreciated substantially against the dollar or vice versa? And would that be measured with respect to the exchange rate between them or perhaps against a common reference point such as the price of gold as denominated in different currencies over a certain time period. As far as the role of central banks in all this, couldn't any country say that in the interests of achieving domestic economic objectives, they were forced to lower interest rates, engage in QE, expand the money supply, which caused their currency to weaken? Well, sure. Isn't that what we said? when the US engaged in serial rounds of QE. Sorry about the spillover effects on trade and capital flows due to downward pressure on the dollar, but that was just an unintended consequence. It's wrong to accuse the Fed of launching an international currency war, as Brazil's finance minister did at the time, because we weren't trying to make that happen. It was collateral damage. Let's assume that we want to dispassionately address, in a bilateral context, the economic aftermath of exchange rate movements triggered by monetary policy decisions. We could acknowledge it without condemning it. We could measure how various currencies performed against gold or whatever neutral monetary standard you want to use for purposes of addressing trade grievances and just consider it no fault currency manipulation. Bottom line. The reason I have hope that we might at last be ready to seriously address the utter incongruity between our global trade aspirations and global monetary arrangements is because the current White House occupant has publicly denounced government intervention in currency markets as an unfair trade practice. President Trump has identified a legitimate problem he has compelling reasons, political, economic, and strategic, to propose remedies and find solutions. Bilateral currency agreements could perhaps serve as stepping stones toward constructing a wholly inclusive international monetary system. And while no one knows how things will actually unfold, let me close with this. Bringing back the gold standard would be very hard to do, but boy, would it be wonderful. We'd have a standard on which to base our money. 
And yes, that's a direct quote from the man who would be elected president of the nation with the world's most influential central bank and most important currency. Thank you. There are always people around to tell you what to do. Um, anyway, it's a pleasure to be here. And let me echo my, uh, my appreciation to Jim Dorn and Cato for organizing this conference once again. As many people have said, this is one of the preeminent ongoing conferences on monetary policy in the country today and has drawn widespread attention. I think it's not just the people at the podium that sort of make it significant. It's just looking who's in the audience and who attends is a, is a really testament to its success. So Jim and Cato, thank you very much. And it's a pleasure for me to be back here um, once again and, and have the opportunity to talk. Actually, I'm going to be fairly brief um, because a lot of what I was going to say has already been said. Uh, and so what I'm going to do is maybe put a little twist on it um, and give you some of my own perspectives on it. Um, as George said, you know, attempts at monetary coordination, there's, there's nothing new about it. It's been going on for a long time. Uh, George talked about the gold standard uh, during the late 19th and early 20th centuries uh, and the Brenton Woods system. In the gold standards case, we have to remember, as George said, this was a fixed exchange rate regime. And as a fixed exchange rate regime, whether it was backed by gold or some other mechanism, as a fixed exchange rate regime, what we know is that in fixed exchange rate regimes, domestic decisions about monetary and fiscal policy become subservient, in many cases, to the exchange rate regime. Okay. And when you have a collection of sovereign countries giving up that sovereignty to the exchange rate regime, oftentimes is incompatible with their domestic desires and policies. So as long as they're independent sovereign nations, it's pretty hard to enforce that regime if the nation decides it doesn't want to. The other thing, of course, that happens is that um, the gold standard problem actually was brought under great pressure from World War I. Uh, the warring nations had to, in fact, finance a world war that was very expensive. They ended up financing it with external debt and inflation. And of course, the external debt after the war, when all the European nations wanted to return to the old gold parities, it just didn't work. They had meetings and secret meetings to return parities. And of course, it failed again and again and again as the outflows of gold from Great Britain to France, the United States, just became unbearable as far as Great Britain was concerned. The whole thing collapsed, obviously, in the early 30s. But Britain Woods was basically the same problem. The same problem with Britain Woods was it was a fixed exchange rate regime, in essence, fundamentally. And those exchange rates, as George pointed out, came under speculative attack because they were allowed to adjust. And as soon as the markets understood they were adjustments could take place, it opened the door to speculative attacks. And again, that system broke down because at the end of the day, it was incentive, it was not incentive compatible with domestic policies of independent nations. So my takeaway from this is that efforts to achieve international coordination through fixed exchange rates, fixing a relative price common, or common currency, are going to be difficult, if not impossible, to achieve 
as long as you, because it's a rule that's incompatible with sovereign monetary fiscal policies. Um, now, of course, in the Eurozone, they've, they've tried to do this with fixed exchange rates, but Harry Johnson and Milton Friedman and others pointed out a long time ago that if you're going to have fixed exchange rates and get the benefits of that common currency, that is, effective product market efficiencies, trade, all the efficiencies that come with that common currency or common, you have to have factor mobility. You have to have quantities that can move from one part of the region, one market, to another part, whether it be physical labor, products, capital. And the world we live in and the world of sovereign nation means that, in fact, among an international context, context <clears throat> that free trade and mobility of factors of production and products isn't free. That's the problem that Europe has. They've got a common currency, but particularly labor is not free to move from one region to another physically. Capital, there are restrictions on capital. There's language differences. There are tax differences. The other thing that is emphasized about common currencies and one currency is there, in the United States, for example, you've got a fiscal authority that has the ability to resolve, for better or for worse in some cases, to resolve imbalances across the region, uh, uh, geographic region, and across states. And that um, helps solve when you have differential shocks across, in the United States, states. You know, there's a physical mechanism to, to address that. Europe does not have that. It doesn't have that physical me mechanism. So one, of, one, one might have thought, based on the gold standard, you might have thought that, well, it's pretty predictable that Britain Woods would have failed. It's pretty predictable the challenges that the euro is having. Okay? But we still to seek this kind of grand solution to international coordination about monetary regimes when, in fact, there's a basic incentive problem between sovereign nations and this international, these international mechanisms that make, would make that work more efficiently. Um, so what I want to talk just a minute about is that, is that when we think about international coordination, it's probably the wrong idea, the wrong solution, or not a workable solution, to base it on trying to rejigger a fixed exchange rate regime. It's failed at least twice in, this, in the last century. Uh, both times for the same reason. Um, there's an argument that it's failing in Europe as well for the same reason. So maybe we should take a lesson from that and think about policies that, uh, um, that help manage our systems or run our systems that are not incentive incompatible. Right? Part of the problem with rules-based systems is the fact that you've got to uh, worry about the rules that you write down. Right. So, for example, in the international context, uh, if you write down a rule for monetary policy that's incentive incompatible and ask it to do a domestic task and an international task, it's going to be very hard for it to do that successfully. Okay. So I gave a paper here four years ago now uh, where I talked about rules and I talked about what I label the paper as a limited central bank. And so we th when we think about rules, we have to think about the institutions. We have to think about how we design our institutions in a way that maximizes the opportunity for those rules to actually work. 
If we design a system where the people who are conducting the rules have incentives to break the rules, the chances of enforcing that rule becomes very hard. So how do you do that? So uh, in that paper, I, talk, I was talking mostly about the Fed and about a central bank in the United States. It wasn't really international in that sense. But in that paper, I made two kinds of points. For a, a Fed or a central bank to operate an effective monetary system, I believe, like John, it needs to follow rules. But you got to make ways of enforcing those rules and of maximizing the probability that it's the incentive of the policymakers to stick with the rules. So I, we do that with central banks more generally. You know, there are rules on central banks about what assets they can buy, what they can hold on their balance sheet. Why do we do that? We do that because we want to restrict the scope of a central bank's buying and selling, limit its range of activities, whether it be limiting discretion or limiting its interventions into fiscal policy. Um, but it also bears on the question of what are the goals and objectives of the institution? So in, in that paper four years ago, I, I, I sort of led me to the argument that says, it's really important if you want a central bank to follow rules, or a rule, uh, you can help yourself by narrowing its, 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 set, its set of objectives, its goals and objectives, so that those goals are easily obtained, easily monitored and measured, and uh, they can be held accountable for that. So that's sort of has led me in, in, along one path to a world where you have a price stability mandate and only one mandate for the Fed. That gives it pretty clear focus. The broader you open the mandate, the more opportunity you create for discretion, deviations from a rule, and opportunities to, to gain different, different objectives. I think that's also true in, uh, in exchange rates in, in the international sector. So for the same, the, by the same logic, I would say that if we're going to have a rules-based international regime for monetary policy in particular, the first thing you don't want to do is set up a rule that is against the incentives of the sovereign nation that is, is, cover, is overseeing the central bank. So I think John has made this point in a slightly different way. He said in, in at least past papers that, that there's nothing incompatible with a, with a regime where you have a domestic-oriented monetary and fiscal policy, flexible exchange rates, and, 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 um, and capital mobility. Those, those would not be necessarily incompatible sets of objectives. Okay? Uh, but if you want to have the, want to have, want to add to that a fixed exchange rate, you've got conflict. And the chance of having, devising a rule that works in that environment and achieves all those rules, all those objectives, is going to be very hard. So that, that's led me to actually be more supportive of the kind of arrangement that John's been advocating, which is free trade, flexible exchange rates, capital mobility, and a domestic monetary policy rule which doesn't interfere with the flexible exchange rates, that doesn't contradict the domestic incentives of the sovereign nation. In that kind of environment, I think what you have, as John was alluding to, a better chance of the central bank actually delivering on the commitment to that rule 
because all of these rules to be effective and work well need the commitment and credibility of the rules in place. We've heard how the problem with both the gold standard and Bretton Woods, in both those cases, there weren't the incentives to enforce and stick to the rules. So why create a set of rules instead of things which you know are going to fail at the outset? Create something that's going to work, that's going to, that will, um, where the policymakers have the in incentive and the motivation to actually stick to the policy rule that they've got. Then you've got a much better chance of allowing markets to work, trade to flow, and uh, inflation to be maintained at a low level across a wide range of countries, which may be the most we can hope for without a unified world government, which can solve the, uh, the common currency problem. Um, so I'm going to stop there. We've, we've, we've gone a, we've gone a, a long time. And uh, uh, I think those were just the ton of different points I wanted to make compared to the others. Thank you. So in order to get our uh, program uh, completely on schedule today, we're going to have a relatively truncated question session. We're only going to go about 10 minutes on the Q&A. Um, but anybody who has a question, get your hands up now, and we'll get a microphone to you. Please identify yourself. Please ask pretty quick questions, since we do have a limited time, and uh, shorter questions allow for longer answers, which is what we're all really here for. Um, we can, let's get a question right here to. Um, Uh, Bill Poole, I'm feeling like a, a triple dipper here in terms of questioning. Uh, I want to uh, reinforce what Charlie Plosser has said in spades. And he, he, start, he has a sentence in his paper about a dream of coordination. Actually, that's more a nightmare, uh, I think, because it is very, very difficult to make any of these agreements really stick. Secondly, how are we going to make any such agreement work. Are we going to put it in a treaty? We have a president right now who is talking about walking away from some of the treaties we already have. So there's no mechanism to enforce a permanent agreement. I would also emphasize that what Milton Friedman often said, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. We're doing pretty well. Look at what happened in the markets when the Brexit vote came along. Sterling depreciated, I guess overnight, by about 30%. In a fixed exchange rate regime, there would have been exchange controls. There would have been a massive government reaction to that. It would have been untenable. It really worked pretty well. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone agrees. Um, all right, let's actually get a question to David Beckworth here in the in the. Uh, he's in in the kind of back around the aisle. Hi, this is for John Taylor. John, you mentioned um, in your discussion about a changing equilibrium rate being incorporated into policy. And this kind of echoes your talk in Boston, where you mentioned that a moving equilibrium rate could be incorporated into rules. What does that mean for your you know, seminal rule, your 1993 rule? Would you be open to that coming into your rule as well? 
Well, it's actually it's actually pretty easy because the that rule had a assumption about um, the equilibrium nominal funds rate and the equilibrium real funds rate and the target inflation rate. Target inflation rate was two percent. But uh, these days, as uh, Loretta was indicating, the FOMC thinks the number is lower by about a percentage point. So if you were having a rules-based system, you would have research on the inputs to the rules as best you could, and you would make adjustments uh, along those lines. I have my own reservations about uh, all the research that goes into it. I already emphasized the uncertainty, which I think is very important. But nonetheless, if you had a rules-based system, you could incorporate that kind of discussion in a very sensible way. Say, well, this is my estimate of our star. This is what it implies with our rules-based system for the interest rate. So that's a healthy kind of discussion to have. If you didn't have a rules-based system, how would you even discuss uh, those kinds of questions? So so that's how I I would view it. I think uh, more research on the question. I've argued that once we get out of the very, very low rates that we've had, especially in other countries, we'll be able to learn more about what that equilibrium rate is now and incorporate that as well. Um, Right up here in the second row. Hi, Carl Golovit at endofthefed.info. Um, Ms. Shelton, uh, I'd like, like to offer as a basis of support for the idea of a new Bretton Woods uh, agreement that perhaps would be denominated in gold, uh, even the writings of founder Roger Sherman, who wrote in 1752, a caveat against injustice or an inquiry into the evils of a fluctuating medium of exchange. And the issue then was each colony had its own system of paper money or credit. Rhode Island vastly overinflated how much they put into circulation, which spilled over into adjoining economies and transferred goods and services to Rhode Island, and people were left with less valuable paper money. So really, in a broader scale, you know, we've sort of become Rhode Island to the world in terms of you know, pumping uh, the dollar throughout the, the world, and it you know, t- tenuous value, arguably. So the same uh, argument still holds as did in 1752 with Roger Sherman. Thank you. What was the question there? Uh, whether that provides a template, really, Roger Sherman's a caveat against injustice. The solution, he put the words into the Constitution, no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a tender and payment of debt. Is that the template for a new Bretton Woods? I, th- I think it's it's useful to think of situations in the past. Uh, we saw, if you look at the notes on the establishment of a money unit written by Thomas Jefferson, he had to figure out how to have a common currency when you had these separate independent um, currencies that had come from the colonies. So, I mean, we're still wrestling with very similar issues. I don't expect to see invitations going out next week um, for a new Bretton Woods conference at Mar-a-Lago. But I, I do think we'll see, um, I do think we're, we'll see more language coming out of this treasury. Um, in fact, in the IMF communique that was uh, issued just after their annual fall meeting, um, emphasizing the importance of stable exchange rates as, uh, as the platform for productive economic growth. So we've got about time for three short questions or like one and a half long one. Um, let's, uh, right here in the second row. Let's start with a short question. I'm William Lee from the Wilkins Institute. Uh, John, 
the usual pushback against rules is that exceptional circumstances require you not to follow the rules. And most of the legislation, like Hensrolings, have given the Fed the option to opt out of the rule when they feel it's right. They just have to go testify and let Congress know about it. Can you talk, and maybe the panel can talk about, what you believe are exceptional circumstances would, that would allow you to deviate from the rule, and what are the rules of engagement for doing that? Um, unfortunately, history tells us that you know, uh, countries like Turkey that deviate from inflation targeting wind up with the worst performing inflation in the world. So, so deviations seem to be the important aspect about engaging in rules-based policy, and maybe you can talk about that. So, so basically, my, my feeling is if you had legislation uh, like Congressman Baird described, there would be a requirement that the central bank, the Fed, would describe how their strategy uh, is deviating from what they said. So, oh, we need a new strategy. Or, so to me, that uh, creates a more strategic, more rules-based system. So my example would be, I've criticized the Fed for 2003, 4, and 5, having rates too low at the time. I argued that was a serious mistake. Well, there was no requirement to say why those rates were unusually low. And so if there were, I think then there would be an open discussion, why are those rates unusually low? I think it would have come out to a different type of policy. Maybe it wouldn't, maybe it would have been uh, communicated, but that's to me the, the rationale. It really creates a more strategic, more rules-based system to have those discussions and you just don't do it internally and nobody knows what's going on. Dan Thornton in the third to last row there's had his hand up a while. Uh, yeah, Dan Thornton from uh, D.L. Thornton Economics. Um, uh, following up on Charlie, what Charlie had to say and actually what the, the, the last questioner had to say, one of my problems with rules is that uh, like fixed exchange rates, you can change them. So I, I think we need something that's less changeable. So I recommend something which I call economic reality-based monetary policy. So basic policymakers agree to some fundamental economic realities or Congress requires them to, uh, to conduct policy consistent with these economic realities. And then basically anytime they seem to be deviating away from those realities and conducting policies that are inconsistent with those realities, then um, that automatically triggers oversight. And it seems to me if you agree on some economic realities, some fundamental truths about economics, then those are less changeable. Those are pretty rigid. So what, policy, what do the panelists think about that idea? Um, I'll just uh, make uh, one point on, on the difficulty of coming up with uh, international-based rules based on where the exchange rate is involved. And, and that has to do with the fact that the second big, biggest economy in the world is the euro area. And if, uh, if there's a rule based on the domestic, on the uh, exchange rate, one has to consider the fact that the current account situations in the individual countries of the euro area are very different. And it's difficult, therefore, to come up with a, a coherent exchange rate that would apply to all areas. And I had heard about four or five months ago some members of the Trump administration criticizing Germany for having a current account surplus of last year of close to 8%. And uh, 
the reason is, the reason they had such a large current account surplus is that the exchange rate for Germany was undervalued, but the fact that it was undervalued was that the exchange rate was a comprehensive uh, exchange rate that included all the countries in the euro area, including the crisis countries. So uh, particularly in today's circumstances, an international-based rule based on fixed exchange rates would even be more difficult than it was in the, the earlier pre-21st pre, um, century exchange rate regimes. Uh, how does one deal with the fact that Germany at 8% current account surplus has not been um, uh, a target of U.S. Congress, whereas China in the period of 2005-2006, because it was a separate currency, had a current account surplus of 5 to 6% and was accused of engaging in unfair trade, trade comp, uh, practices. So things are not as simple as they were. Uh, even 10 years ago in coming up with uh, a rule based on a fixed exchange rate. So we're going to take a uh, quick break here until about 12.15, and then we're going to start our next panel. Uh, let's thank this pan these panelists. This was a really terrific event. <laughs>